We're going to be spending some time once again in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. So it's just two verses, but there's a lot there. I'm going to read it. You can follow along on the screen or if you can find it in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, like we talked about last week, there is a world of difference between imitation and mimicry. There's a world of difference between imitation and mimicry. Imitation is the act of attempting to take on the very essence of someone. Whereas mimicry is just trying to simulate the appearance of someone. It's very superficial. Imitation is holistic. Mimicry is superficial. And in Ephesians 5, Paul summarizes everything that he's been saying through Ephesians about who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, and, and how we're supposed to begin to connect that to the ground level of our lives. He summarizes it in these verses, to be imitators of God by following Christ's self-giving example to one another. Now, for some people, any kind of a call to imitating Jesus or following Jesus is actually received as a kind of threat because in our culture, there's such a dominant narrative of be your own person. Figure out who you are and kind of you do you. And so the invitation to say, deny yourself and follow Jesus feels very much like a threat, feels very counterintuitive. Because we think that if we do that, that I'm gonna lose my authentic self, my true self. However, one of the interesting dynamics at play in the spiritual life is that as you seek to imitate Jesus, you don't actually lose your truest self. You discover it. Jesus said that in Matthew 16, 25. He says, hey, if you want to save your own life, if you want to find it, if you want to hold on to your own sense, your own self-constructed sense of identity, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. So there's a counterintuitive movement where as I learn to imitate Jesus, I actually become more of who I'm supposed to be. See, our authentic and true selves emerge as we live rightly in connection with God, other people, our vocation in the world, and our sense of self or identity. And we can absolutely make steps towards living wisely and living well with other people and within creation, and we can even grow in certain dimensions of self-understanding and development. But to live with that strong, confident sense of this is who I am, that can't happen outside of being connected to our creator. See, outside of connection with God, you're, you're pretty limited in your ability to know who your true self is and the calling that God has designed for you. You're really left to a bit of guesswork where you scan the horizon of what you can see and kind of say, yeah, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, I don't know. And that's because our most fundamental identity and our purpose are gifts that are received from God. They're not invented by us. And so that means that as you seek to imitate Jesus, not mimic, 
but imitate, take on Jesus' essence, your unique sense of self and mission actually comes into view and it becomes more clear. A testimony that I recently read, I think summarized it well. This person said, when I came to Christ, I felt like I was meeting myself for the first time. It was in the context of a relationship with Jesus that it all began to make sense. And my identity wasn't threatened, it was more deeply secured and rooted in God's truth and love. But even for a Christian, for anybody, identity formation is still a process. Think about dress up, right? I talked about this a little bit last week. As you grow up and go through life, we play the dress up game. We try on different styles of clothing. I mean, that's pretty common, especially in adolescence. That's kind of the the real um, focal point of identity formation. We're trying on different hairstyles and trying different friend groups and trying different hobbies to see what fits and what feels comfortable with us. But we don't stop doing that as adolescents. We grow up and we still imitate people. And even for the people who are like, well, I don't do that, I'm my own person, I forge my own path. No, you don't. You're just imitating people in your life who told you, be your own person, forge your own path. Imitation is inevitable. So the question isn't whether or not we're gonna imitate someone or something, it's are the objects of our imitation worthy? And are they gonna lead us into life? And sometimes as we're growing up, we have people around us who are saying, these are the clothes you should wear. This should be your identity. Just for the sake of having all Ps, I labeled them as parents, pastors, and peers. But you can think of pastors as authority figures, right? Often well-intended, our parents in our lives are like, these are the clothes you should wear. This is who you're supposed to be. Maybe we have authority figures who are like, this is who you're supposed to be. And maybe our friends, especially in adolescence, are saying, hey, this is who you are. And often they're well-intended, but they often don't get it quite right because again, our identity are gifts from God. And wearing clothes that don't fit is really, really awkward and uncomfortable. (laughs) There's a neat little scene within one of the most famous stories in the Bible, David and Goliath. Before that story unfolds, that scene, there's a scene before it. And you have young David. He's been anointed to be king, but he's not king yet. Saul is king. And he's probably, so David's probably about eh, kind of a tween, young teenager, but he's not fighting age. But he's volunteered to face Goliath after hearing the giant's taunts against Israel and Israel's God. He's like, why isn't anybody standing up to this guy? And all the soldiers are like, have you seen this dude? Like, no one's touching this. Who's going to go mano a mano with Goliath? And so David volunteers, and Saul gives David his armor and gives him his weaponry so that David can go out into the battle. And in 1 Samuel 17, it says this, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. Oh, this is is super weird. This is very, very uncomfortable. And he eventually says, "I I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. And then the scripture says he just took them off. See, David didn't feel comfortable using armor and weapons that were made for someone else because what he was being asked to wear was the clothes and armors of a warrior king. But David was like, I'm not a warrior king, I'm a shepherd. And if I stand any chance against Goliath, I can't fight with someone else's clothing on. I can't live into someone else's identity and face this enemy. 
I have to stand in who God has made me. And so out of this strong sense of identity rooted in his relationship with God, David says, I'm going to go out and battle with shepherd's armor, which is ostensibly nothing. And I'm going to go out with a shepherd's weapon, which is a sling and five stones. But he also goes out with a shepherd's faith and conviction in the power of God to use um, meek and meager and weak things to shame the strong. And the rest is history. See, if we live disconnected from Jesus, then what we'll be in danger of is looking to other people and lesser models for our imitation and making them the source of our imitation. But that will mean trying to get clothes that were meant for other people to fit us. And that'll never quite work and we'll always live with a pervasive sense of, oh, something isn't right. These are the, these are the best clothes that I've found but it's still kind of awkward to walk around. But I guess this is just how life is supposed to be. You never really have a sense of settled identity and purpose. But the scripture says we can if we seek to imitate Jesus. And when we do that, we discover as we clothe ourselves with Christ that that clothing actually fits each of us like a glove. But it leads to all of us becoming a more genuine, um, it leads us into a greater sense of our authentic selves, our truest selves. Because God is now leading us and healing us and showing us what we are supposed to be as redeemed image bearers. And so Paul says, imitate Jesus, but again, he'll use that same idea, but use the metaphor of clothing throughout many of his letters. In Romans 13, he says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3, he'll write, all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And in Colossians 3, he says, listen, you're God's chosen people, you are holy, you are dearly loved, and so clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. He's drawing out the dominant character traits of Jesus and saying, clothe yourself with these things. And this is not a call to religious conformity where we're saying, okay, a good Christian dresses this way, talks this way, eats this kind of cereal, has this kind of structure to their day, that kind of like top-down Again, other people forcing kind of cookie-cutter Christianity on us. This is, as I learn to take on the values and the priority and the practices of Jesus, I am learning to live well before God and with other people. I'm learning to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. But it's not, I'm not experiencing it as a break in my identity, and I'm having to kind of put myself aside and become someone that I'm not, I'm actually finding that I'm coming alive. That's why, um, oh, I'm gonna mix it up. Is it Athanasius or Ignatius? I think it's Athanasius who says, you know, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that's that sense. When, as we seek to honor and love God and imitate Jesus, become Christ-like, we actually become a restored image bearer in all the beautiful, unique ways that God has made us individually to be. But imitating Jesus is not easy. I know it can sound easy. I could stand up here, right, and say, there, go become like Jesus, grow in Jesus, uh, imitate Jesus. And you might say, absolutely, I want that. 
But if we don't transition to how to do that, then you can be left being motivated, but not equipped. And over time, if you motivate people without equipping them, then disillusionment just sets in. You can only ride the motivational hype train. Go out there, live for Jesus, grow in Christ, become, you know, um, clothe yourself with Christ. You can only push that hype train so long. If you don't connect it to how to do that, people will just begin to tune out. And where most Christians get stuck isn't on the motivational end. They know what they should do. They want to do it. Often Christians get stuck on the how to do that end of things. And so over the next few weeks, what I want to do is kind of park here in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, and kind of cycle in deeper this theme of what does it mean to imitate Jesus and look at very practical ways that we can, steps that we can take to connect this ideal and this call of imitating Jesus and say, oh, I know the next step that I can take. And in a week from now and in a month from now and in six months from now, we're experiencing that growth. It's not just an ambition that is constantly being frustrated. We're actually living into it. To that end of pursuing transformation in Christ, I came across something this week that I think would be really helpful, just as it's been really helpful for me, probably I think for all of us, and that is uh, Bloom's taxonomy on the five stages of change and transformation that occur in any person. So across any dimension of life, there are five stages of change and transformation. The first is awareness. And this is the first stage where we become aware. I think if you click it, Marvin, it'll, it should come up. Maybe. Okay, then you're going to have to do some extra work and fill it in. Oh, there we go. Aware. This is where we realize that there's a problem. Maybe we're convicted of wrongdoing. Maybe we just realize there's a gap between how we're living and how we could be living. We see someone else's example and say, oh, I never realized you could have that kind of marriage or that kind of friendship or walk in that kind of integrity. Maybe there's just a new possibility that God opens opens up to us and we become aware that a different way of living is possible. The second stage is ponder. And this is the stage where we kind of get curious and we begin to kind of play with the idea of what would this look like in our life. Maybe we begin reading a book about it, having conversations with our friends, maybe a mentor about it. Maybe we're Googling some stuff on it and reading some articles. The third stage is we come to value it. And so we've become aware, we've kind of pondered it, and then we've, there's been enough research and investigation that we say, yeah, this is becoming important to me. I want to make this important to me. I've come to value this. I've come to value becoming more healthy. I've come to value growing in my wisdom around finances. I've come to value being a better friend. I've come to value being a more skilled athlete in this area. I've come to value imitating Jesus and growing in my relationship with God. The stage after that is four, it's to prioritize it. And so now we move from valuing something to actually prioritizing it. And so we make decisions and restructure our time, energy, money around what we've come to value. The last stage is we own it. And this is that we've prioritized it long enough that it starts to feel less like a struggle and something that we're kind of trying to build into our lives and it just is kind of in our bones. This is just how we live now. This is just how we off- operate. 
what was once second, uh, what was once um, very much against the grain of our nature has now become second nature to us. It wasn't easy before, but we've worked on it and prioritized it to such a degree that now it's, it's who we are. And if you consider any area of your life, just pick one where you've experienced growth, you have moved through these stages, whether or not you've realized it or not. Now, you've probably done it, it's been a process. This often takes time. The more significant the change, the longer this takes normally. And it's not without its awkwardness. It's difficult. We experience setbacks, but this is the way that God leads us through growth and change. However, there is a sticking point on that process of growth for most people. A sticking point is a point where, a point that is likely to, that causes or is likely to cause an impasse or a stoppage. So we're moving through the process and all of a sudden there's a point where things kind of get really hard. There's resistance. We kind of feel like we were driving along, but now our tires are stuck in the mud and we're applying more force, but it's not necessarily helping. Now, Marvin, can we go back to that previous slide with all of the um, stages up? Of those, no, sorry, back, if we can go the other way. Of those five stages, awake, ponder, value, prioritize, and owning it, there is a transition between one of those numbers that for most people is the sticking point. Does anyone want to guess where that sticking point is. What was that, sorry, Maria? Right, yeah, it's the movement from valuing something to actually prioritizing it. That is the sticking point for most people because stages one to three generally are abstracted. I have an idea, I'm mulling over it. Yeah, I come to value something, but it hasn't necessarily touched any lived reality on the ground floor of my life. It's all abstracted. To make it real in my life, to start prioritizing it means I have to affect change. I have to start saying no to this, yes to this. I have to start doing this and stop doing this. I have to figure out how am I going to readjust my finances in order to make this a priority? How am I going to not just move into the week unintentionally if I want this to become a priority in my life? And so the sticking point for most people is the movement between simply valuing something, I want to grow in my relationship with God, and prioritizing that. Moving through steps one through three is relatively easy. The transition to four and five is very, very difficult. And it's even difficult if the current state of your life is a complete mess and you have lots of motivation to change. The Exodus narrative is really instructive here. And it shows us that even if our current situation is really crummy, the pull of the past is often, or can often, overwhelm the promise of the future. So you have Israel has been freed from slavery under Pharaoh. Israel has been rescued by God in a really direct and miraculous and powerful display of glory. Israel has even witnessed God, you know, carving out the Red Sea, walking through it, the armies of Egypt chasing after them, God obliterating that army. They have experienced the plagues and the Passover miracle. 
And in Exodus 16, we read this. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, that's six weeks later, it's about 45 days, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, oh, if only we had died at the Lord's hand in Egypt. Because there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you've brought us out here into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Isn't that interesting? They were slaves for 400 years. They get their first taste of freedom in a powerful, miraculous way. And 45 days in, the pull of the past has made them want to go back. Ugh, this is tough. Let's go back. It's made them idealize the past. You know, now that we're out here in the wilderness moving towards the promised land, it wasn't really so bad in Egypt. In fact, in my mind's eye, I remember just being like stuffed to the rafters with good meat and T-bone steaks and fresh fruit. Oh, so good. Why do we leave again? Is it really worth it? Let's go back. We had it better than this. And I think here's one of the really interesting dynamics of this movement, that the pull of the past causes the Israelites to make a future with God seem more risky than a, path, than a past without him. A future with God to them looks like a greater risk and a greater threat than simply going back and living the way they used to without him, right? I guess, I guess we came out here to die I mean, clearly God is leading us, but I guess the whole end game is just he's done this and now he's brought us out here and we're going to die. Ergo, we should go back because following this God isn't safe. This isn't actually a path to freedom. This is the path to death. And only weeks before, they were calling out to God and saying, send a deliverer, help us. How many of us can relate? I can relate to that story, right? I want God's healing in my life. I want God's power. I want God's direction. I want to move into the next thing God has for me. But as it begins, and as I'm asked to, to move from simply valuing it in the abstract to prioritizing it, and there's any kind of resistance from without or from within, uh, I don't know if it's worth it. I get a little shaky. I get a little hesitant. I get a little fearful. I get a, get a little lazy. I begin to feel the pull back into the old habits and I begin to do a cost-benefit analysis. Is it really going to be worth it? I don't know. Is it really that bad? You know, nothing's perfect, so maybe, right, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know and you start kind of justifying staying where you are. Yeah, moving from three to four, moving from three to four, from value to prioritizing has always been a sticking point in the human heart. In weightlifting, there are sticking points too. Uh, there's a point in the lift, especially when you're doing heavy weight, like a bench press, where the weight sticks. So you're not moving in a slow, controlled manner. When you're pushing the weight up from your chest, there's a sticking point where you sort of almost pause and sometimes even do stop. And in that sticking point, you have a, two choices. You can bail and ask your spotter for help to lift it up, or you can try and persevere and push through the stick point. Most people bail. Some people persevere. And I asked my trainer, what's the difference mentally between those who 
move through the stick point and those that continually bail. And she said this. She said, well, it's often the fear of failing the lift that's greater than the lift itself. But failing lifts and finding your limits is actually the first step to pushing past them. Because once you know where your failure limit is, then you can learn to ride the line and train closer to failure. And the closer and more frequently you ride this line, the easier physically and mentally it begins to feel until you eventually push into and through the push point. And I say that to say, even when we fail the transition, or when we fail, because you will fail the transition at many times in your life between I value this and I'm, I'm going to prioritize it. No, I end up not doing it. I'm going to read the Bible every day this week. I've come to value that. Absolutely. You get to Sunday, you're like, I didn't crack it open once. The unwise and wrong conclusion is to think, oh, I guess I can't do it. The right and faithful response is, oh, this is going to take a little bit more training than I thought it would. I'm going to need to learn how to draw upon God's support. But I now know where my sticking point is, and in time, I can move through it. Right? God doesn't lead you into the state of awareness, into the state of pondering, into the state of valuing something in order to keep you stuck there and just cycling he wants to move us into and through all the stages of transformation. But moving into stages four and five is going to demand something of us. It's going to demand effort. And this is where Christians get confused because we say, well, doesn't the Bible say that salvation is grace and it's not from works? And it's like, yes, salvation, deliverance from God is completely an issue of grace. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can only receive it by faith, by trusting in Christ, and then you are saved. But once you are saved, the Bible makes it very clear, you are then to apply effort with God's help in learning to grow as a Christian. And so Dallas Willard has this famous line where he says, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. So we can't earn God's grace, but once we receive it, we then say, wow, I need to rethink my whole life and how do I now live in cooperation with God to grow? So salvation, our justification in Christ is free, but our growth demands an active participation on our part with God. But unfortunately, many Christians bail at the stick point between valuing something and prioritizing it because it gets hard and awkward, and uncomfortable, and costly. What are the consequences of that? You tell me, what are the consequences as a Christian of saying, God's brought awareness, I've pondered it, I've come to value these things, I've searched the scriptures, I understand this is the way that I should be living, I take my first few steps out, and it's like, oh, resistance, hard, difficult, awkward, painful, costly, I don't know if I want to do this, and we back off. What are the consequences long-term of that? Just throw one or two out. Yeah, no growth, stagnation, just a pervasive sense of being stalled out, being stuck, um, complacency, our faith begins to maybe wane, our confidence in God, because we're like, oh, it doesn't seem like God's doing anything in my life. And God's like, I'm doing a lot, but I'm 
you need to kind of move over into this sphere. We're like, well, no, I'm just going to sit on the couch and you're going to do all the work, God. You do the heavy lifting. And God's like, well, I've done the heavy lifting and I've also put my spirit inside of you and I'm spotting you, but you still got to apply yourself to the lift. And if we don't do that and we don't experience growth, then again, we can begin to think either I'm a bad Christian or, the, or Christianity doesn't work for me or God doesn't love me because if God loved me, he would make it easy and things would just happen. And I hear these other people talking about things that are happening in their life and I'm still waiting for God to do it in my life. Right? It just breeds a stagnation spiritually which long term can lead to us just not accessing the abundant life that God has for us. So the consequences of stalling, whether it's in the area of finances, how we use our bodies, how we engage in the workplace, how we build relationships, just stalling out at valuing things, but then refusing to push through that stick point is pretty significant. And I've certainly had seasons in my life where in certain areas, I have resisted out of fear, out of hesitancy, out of the burden that I believe it will be, I'll have to bear to push through that stick point, but that's never consequence free because I'm missing out on the blessings that God has for me if I just scale back and settle for valuing things in the abstract, but then letting my regular life just stay regular and operating at a, in a kind of a, not an intentional growth-focused way. So if we're at our sticking point in our lives, if you're at a sticking point in your life, maybe not your whole life, maybe just a particular area, what's a solution? Well, there aren't any quick fixes, but I do want to talk about at least three things this morning really quickly that I think we all need to, especially in this time of year, be aware of. I'll dip back into the David and Goliath story and say these are kind of three cultural giants that I think really, really prevent everybody in this room to a greater or lesser degree from moving through that stick point in a lot of ways. So the first giant is just busyness. It's become so normalized for people to equate a full life with a full calendar or a full schedule. And being busy has even become a kind of badge of honor. It's a, it's a way to virtue signal to other people how important you are, right? I'm so busy. So many demands on my time, right? What's the inference? I'm so important. I'm holding the universe together. I, I am, I'm the thing that's, you know, right? And so that's often used unconsciously as a way to say, I'm so important. But many of us, would probably admit we are living at a pace that we cannot sustain healthily. We can pull it off and the main stuff of our life seems to be holding together, but it won't in another two years, five years, 10 years. We, we're not living at a pace we can sustain. The second giant is distraction. We're always engaged. It's never been easier to be plugged into media and information and taking in stimulation every waking hour. Some of our jobs even demand it or lead us down that road. There can be a continual distraction between social media, Netflix, video games, and even if our pursuit in those areas are somewhat intentional and good, we're not totally squandering our time. Maybe we're reading good things, listening to good things, exposing ourselves to good things. You can fill your life up with so many good distractions that they crowd out central and more important best priorities. And I'm super guilty of that in my own life. 
I fill it with many, many, many good things, but the best and highest priorities get sidelined. And then convenience, the giant of convenience. The promise that technology holds out for us is easy everywhere culture. We expect results on demand and results that are effortless. And in different ways, we've been taught as a culture to seek the easy, the fast, the on-demand solution, the quick. We're a microwave culture that expects results and we expect them yesterday with little to no effort. And so this places within us an aversion towards things that take time and effort and an aversion to things that when you start to do them, it's like, oh, this is hard. I'm totally for growth if it's easy, fast, and convenient. But when it stops being that, right, I want to become better at this sport. Okay, do these drills. I do a drill for half a minute. Oh, this is tough. I'm failing. Oh, yeah, you're going to have to fail a ton and learn from it before you get better. Uh, ah, never mind then. Here's a big idea that I want us to remember. If we remain busy in our lives, in a perpetual state of distraction, and if we remain convenienced, that's not an actual word, but I'm just, you know what I'm getting at. If we live in a state where we just structure our lives so that we're convenienced, all you're gonna be able to offer God and other people is religious mimicry is just super level spirituality. You will not experience transformation. You will, you will grow into a greater split between I believe all these things, I value all these things, but the ground level of my life because what I'm prioritizing and owning and living into is a huge chasm. Not because God is holding you back from those things, from fullness of life, but you're holding yourself back. You aren't faithfully learning little by little, step by step, in a process to structure your life around God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So here's one step you can take in each of these areas this season. And if that feels overwhelming to you and you're like, I can't face all these, these three giants, that's totally fine, just focus on one. Just say for the next holiday season, for the next five weeks or so until we get to the end of December, I'm gonna focus on doing this little step. And these are little steps. Maybe you can push yourself beyond these. That's fine. I'm just assuming little steps for people with little faith like myself who don't need 50 steps ahead. They need the next step. So for busyness, let's recognize that you can't live at warp speed without warping your soul and schedule an hour to two hours a day of nothing, of just rest. Schedule it in. So that when someone says, hey, are you available tonight? Or do you want to go out and do this? You're like, oh, no, I have, a, I have something else. I'm already booked up. But you've booked rest, one to two hours every day. And you, you can just show up to that space, and you're, what you're doing is you're giving yourself space to rest and to recreate. And you're allowed to do this. If you want to be really ambitious, maybe take a day of the week, just for the next five, one day. Just don't schedule much of anything. Or leave 75% of the day open and don't fill it up. Number two, distraction. Whatever the source of your distraction is, video games, cell phone, TV, just go distraction-free slash screen-free for one hour a day. Right? You could make it that same hour that you're not busy, right? Like just 
So again, not, not cutting out video games, not stop watching shows, not say, just one hour where you're not doing anything. You're giving your mind a chance to just relax and ponder. You're going out for a walk. You're just sitting and doing nothing. Just praying or, again, you're just not stimulating yourself. And the reason why we're doing that is because there are things that we can only receive from God when we're in a state of voluntary understimulation. That's why Jesus often goes to a desert place or a deserted place to pray. Because you can't keep, you can't grow if you're just constantly getting inputs. You have to be able to let your, yourself breathe in quietness and being distraction-free. And lastly, when it comes to convenience, it's more of an attitude adjustment. It's just brace for impact. It's go into the season understanding that if you seek to follow Jesus into new territory, you will absolutely experience turbulence and resistance. It'll come from within yourself. Little voices saying, it's not worth it. Go back. The change isn't going to, oh, it's so much work. It's so much better back here in your anger, in your unforgiveness, in your bad habits, in your chaos. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And there's going to be forces from without, maybe even people around us, maybe our family, friends, who are like, oh, look at this person, all high and mighty, following Jesus, that's great. Like, don't take it too seriously, right? Even well-intended people around us will distract us. We have to understand there's going to be forces marshaled against us. Because, and that's just the way change always is. Change is going to be uncomfortable. And one of the things that my trainer, Megan, said to me very early on in CrossFit when I was starting to realize that I'm going to be sore all the time from working out and uh, challenging your body in all kinds of different ways. She said, oh yeah, that, the, the, the discomfort will never go away. So you just have to get comfortable being in a perpetual state of discomfort. You just have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that's a good kind of tagline for Jesus following discipleship. You might have seasons that seem very easy and you seem very blessed by the, the flow of, oh, things are going well. But the normal path of discipleship is a bit of discomfort as we transition between valuing something and actually learning to prioritize it and own it. I'll finish with a quote from my trainer, Megan. She said this to me at the end of our exchange about overcoming stick points. She said, sometimes these stick points are all about finding the passion to push through it. It's all about finding that deeper why. Why am I doing this? And I can't think of a more powerful, compelling vision to drive you passionately through whatever sticking point you're encountering than to move into a more fully realized and real and deep and transformative connection with God that leads you to a deeper and freer and richer connection with other people into your sense of vocation and calling in the world with a more secure um, foundation and sense of self-identity and purpose. I think we all want those things. I think we all want and value as Christians deep change and transformation. But first of all, realize that will never happen outside of a relationship with Christ. So if you don't know Christ, if you're holding Christ at arm's length and saying, well, I want to kind of have this part of the Christianity offers, but I kind of want to do it with all the Jesus mumbo jumbo. It's not going to work. You can't disconnect from your creator but expect to flourish as an image bearer made in his image. 
You have to turn to him. You have to ask for his help and strength, his power, his forgiveness, his healing to lead you into that new life because you can't save, save yourself. You need God's grace. But if you're a follower of Jesus, who has stalled out in God's process of transformation in your life? Then turn to him and say, Jesus, I need your help. I need your strength to face this transition, this giant. I don't want to just be stuck here any longer just valuing this stuff. I want to move into new life. I want to experience deep and real change and transformation. But I need your help. I can't just do it in my own power. I want your healing. I want your freedom. I want your joy. I want your peace. I want your purpose. I want abundant life. And the good news is when we pray that prayer and when we, when we garner the resolve to say, I'm going to figure out how to move through this sticking point by God's grace and God's power, we can be confident that he will marshal the forces within us and around us to help us. Because God doesn't save us in order to get us stuck. Right? He saves us in order to get us free and to lead us on his path of transformation and new life. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. I pray that for everyone here who has yielded their lives to you, that you would, Holy Spirit, create a kind of holy discontent in our lives where bring the particular area to the front and center of our hearts and just make it, make us just want to say, I, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to live stuck. I, I'm tired of not living into the transformation and change that's possible in you. Give us a holy discontent so we pursue you in a deeper way. And over these next few weeks, as we really learn practices that can help us imitate you, God, please have mercy on us and lead us into new life and new transformation. We love you. And we just acknowledge that we're wholly dependent on your grace and power. In Jesus' name, amen.